everybody. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and we're back with another group episode this week. And now, with our full staff, which we haven't had since, like, a really long time. Uh, joining me here at the Boulder Groupetto here in Boulder, Colorado, is Ace Mechanic, Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. We also have Cycling Tips Senior Tech Editor Dave Rome in Sydney, Australia. Hello, Dave. Hello. And last, but certainly not least, we have the long-awaited... Long overdue, much missed, return of none other than the hammer himself, Cycling Tips Editor-in-Chief, Kaylee Fretz. It's good to have you back, Kaylee. It's good to be back. I was a bit busy for the last month. What, what was going on? I don't know. Just a lot of stuff. A lot of meetings. A lot of, uh, <laughs> I had a flight to France for some reason. Huh. It was ridiculous. Are you feeling relaxed from your holiday? That was lovely. Yeah, I, I slept you know, four to five hours per night uh, and worked the rest of the time. <laughs> it was great. Excellent. Well, it's only been about a week since our last group show, but we've got a lot to talk about today. We'll actually go over the intriguing new aerodynamic cycling system that Ronan wrote about this week. We'll talk about the newest link between professional basketball and cycling. We'll chat about a new custom bike show and whether a custom bike might be right for you. And of course, as always, we'll wrap up this week's show with another round of Ask a Mechanic. Dave, before we dive into stuff, mm. usual question. Yes. What was your most recent tool purchase? It's a really good question. Um, <laughs> top of my <laughs> mind. Rem- do you ever remember anymore? I just blank out and buy tools. <laughs> um, uh, no, I, I'm trying to remember what... It's tricky because I'm waiting on some things, you see. There's always, there's always tools coming. I'm trying to think what was most recently received. Uh, a set of Starrett digital uh, calipers. There you go. Which I found on sale out of uh, a tool store that was closing down out of the UK, which I'm sad about them closing, but I'm happy that they had a sale. So, Did you not already have a set of digital calipers? Yes, I had Matutios, which are also incredible. But now I have a pair of Starrett as well, which are longer than the ones I had. So now I can measure things that are a whole 50 millimeters longer than what I could before. So it's it was a glorious day. And yeah, I'm poor. <laughs> Is there some sort of recovery group that you can join? Like, do, like at what point do we have to stage an, inter- an intervention? I don't know. I feel like Instagram's really unhealthy for me, though, because people just actually encourage me. Um, they do. They do. Yeah, we do so, for that matter. It's it's a supportive group in the wrong way. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is, but uh, okay, not in my social circles. Okay, well, uh, hmm, interesting. Well, Zach, it is the first week of August here. Uh, it's hot and surprisingly humid here in Colorado, and nevertheless, cross is clearly coming, is. as I can see by this mountain of zip carbon wheels and freshly glued Dugast tubulars. Yep. Cross is always coming and triathlon is coming and road is coming and mountain is coming and there's even gravel is coming. Where's your, where's your fume hood for all this tubular glue? I've got a window. It's fine. Okay. Maybe that explains the grumpiness. Uh, well, the oh, other- track is coming too. I've got some track wheels here. Oh, how about that? Uh, well, the other thing that is coming is all the coverage from our recent field test uh, event that we that we held in Steamboat that Dave was there for, uh, along with Betsy and Ellen. So we are rolling out a whole bunch of content. Uh, the Lauf Siegler review just rolled out today. By the time you hear this podcast, uh, the next review might be live, and it should be for the uh, Triband RC120 from Decathlon. Uh, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Make sure you regularly check the website for all the updates. We're going to be rolling out all that stuff over the next few weeks. 
uh, until we're done. So it should be like two or three rounds per week uh, for the next three or four weeks, something like that. But uh, there will be a very distinct start and start and finish here. We'll have a much more regular rollout than last year, we promise. Uh, but anyway, make sure you check out the site, check out the uh, the YouTube channel. Lots of field test stuff to come. All right, let's get into the news. Ronan recently wrote an article on this thing called the Aerodynamic Cycling System. It was developed by a former Mercedes F1 aerodynamicist, uh, and it consists of three components. We got a uh, like an aero sensor thing up front underneath the bars. You have the aero body optical sensor that measures your body position. You have the aerodrome automatic lap timer. And the appeal of this whole thing, it's not entirely a new concept. You have had devices recently that have promised to give you real-time accurate measurements of your coefficient of, dr of aerodynamic drag. Uh, however, the simplicity of this setup is what really is its appeal, at least for the user anyway. So this sensor measures airspeed, air density, ambient air pressure, and wind yaw angle, combines all that with real-time power and speed measurements to calculate your drag coefficient right on your Garmin display. Uh, and the body position center is kind of more of a go no go indicator with indicator with color changes on your screen to let you know if your head or torso is starting to stray from the ideal position. It's claimed uh, plus or minus ten centimeters of accuracy for the altimeter. Claimed one percent accuracy in CDA in a velodrome and one and a half percent outdoors. It is not inexpensive, as you would expect. Uh, it's, full it's retail less price than I thought, but yeah. It, yeah, full retail price is, depending on which setup you get, is between 900 and 1125 British pounds. However, if you jump on Indiegogo right now, you can get it for substantially cheaper, 650 to 844 pounds. Either way, I have a feeling we may see more of these, maybe not in the hands of amateurs exactly, possibly. I would have to think that there are going to be more than a few coaches who are going to be jumping on this thing, though. Masters racers. Masters racers for sure. The the pros go to the wind tunnel. <laughs> yeah. Have you met Zach's clientele? Have you ever met them before? Is, Have you looked at the, at the I'm, I'm, array looking, of bikes? I'm looking at the wall of Zach's clientele right now. <laughs> uh, I, I, should, I should also point out that this that this giant pile of zip tubulars with Dugas that, that are here are for the Boulder Junior cycling team. <laughs> right. Uh, so. I mean, exactly. A thousand bucks for real-time CDA, I think... Every single Masters racer on the planet is going to have this thing if it works as advertised within a year. Yeah, it's actually not that much money for for a lot of the the people that will be intrigued by this. And, you know, they might even just get it as a toy and play with it for a week and then put it down again, right? Like it's it's perhaps not going to become part of their regular rotation as it's intended to be. But I can imagine them selling quite a few of these. Kaylee and I have a mutual friend that I guarantee you will buy this. <laughs> and I know that you can think of who it is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the question is, okay, it's a thousand bucks. Like, can a regular person use it and get anything useful out of it and set it up properly so that they actually do get, was it one and a half percent accuracy outside? That's that's the big that's the big question for me. Is like, how useful is it in the real world? That's something Ronan did cover. And he basically suggests that the technology, the accuracy is there, but you need patience with it. It's not going to all of a sudden tell you what combination's faster. You're going to have to put in a heap of time in order to get anything useful out of this. Um, and for that, Ronan kind of speculated that the people that will benefit most from it are really like the, the trade teams, the national teams, the Olympic teams, um, basically anyone riding at a, a professional level that might have a coach that has the time to to go through the data while the rider can just focus on doing the laps. 
And I guess to your to your point, Kaylee, about the about the price. I mean, a thousand pounds. Realistically, we're looking at what like two hours of wind tunnel time. That does not include any of the analysis that would come after the actual testing time in a wind tunnel. So, I, as far as the value goes, relative to what it would be and like to go somewhere, that it it is dirt cheap for comparatively speaking for what you get. Yep, I could imagine a heap of brands buying it. And if it works in the real world, then it could be better than wind tunnel time too, right? I mean, you know, one of the one of the things about wind tunnels that we know is you can go dial in a time trial position in a, in a wind tunnel and then you get half an hour into a 40k TT and and you can't hold that position anymore and you shift into some slightly different position that is significantly worse, right? And that's the kind of thing that you normally and it, it's a big big part of the reason why professional teams do a lot of like velodrome testing these days where they can sort of put power down for an extended period of time. Um but if you could do that just all the time, you know, why not? <laughs> why, why not just why not just stick this thing on on you know your top time trialist bike every single time they go out and train all spring and and start to crunch that data? Why don't Why don't you put it on Taco Vanderhorn's bike every time he goes training so that he can train for the next uh, ridiculously super long breakaway? Right? Like uh, there's there's lots of different types of riders that if this thing again if it works as advertised and is and is relatively easy to use and is as accurate as they say it is in the real world. Then that's it's it's a it's a total game changer in terms of of optimizing or it's like self optimization basically. Yeah, it's it's definitely a game changer in that. Um, and Ronan covered this as well that it's it's the same technology that um, or a different company but same technology that was seen with uh, Jumbo Visma last year's tour. Uh, and they basically use it for course recons. So they go out before the race, they figure out what the wind conditions are, and then they can optimize their uh, component selections around the actual conditions on the day. Um, and I think uh, like this kind of follows very closely on from that podcast James did very recently with uh, Reserve Wheels and Cervelo, um, which is they're starting to measure real-world wind conditions in uh great accuracy to to better understand how products actually perform outside of laminar flow and this is that sort of product this this would allow them to capture that sort of data and make it a whole lot more accessible than a custom quad bike that has such sensors on it so uh it's only three wheels dave three wheels oh it's only three wheels okay oh that's that's way cheaper than a than a quad (laughs) bike um yeah so i think this this is a game changer in racing because we're going to start perhaps annoyingly seeing uh, teams optimize for the day, uh, aerodynamically optimize for the day, but also for for products as well because uh, it's going to make brands, uh, even small brands, it's, it's an affordable product that small brands can go out and start doing track testing themselves at a at better accuracy and with you know a lower bar. Um, so yeah, it's an exciting product in that sense. I guess what could be really intriguing is the idea that let's say someone actually does take the approach of wanting to objectively figure out what really is faster for them and if enough people were to do that and enough people were to figure out and really kind of like obviously understand that their own body position is far more important than any of the stuff that they stick on their bike i wonder i guess potentially this this thousand dollars could theoretically maybe keep them from buying a whole bunch of other stuff right yeah i think i would say if they're obsessed enough to buy into this and spend the time optimizing their position they're probably then obsessed enough to start chasing 
other grams of of uh, of drag saved, right? It's um, yeah, or they already like, have all that stuff, and they're now getting the sensor to make them faster, yeah, and get more stuff, yeah, yeah. Like a weight weenie doesn't just stop at the tires, right? Like it's no. I don't know. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, true. It's never ending. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was a dumb premise. Whoever's <laughs> going to buy this is just going to buy more stuff. Who am I kidding? All right, well, uh, yeah, it'll be really cool to see what happens with this thing moving forward. I know Ronan has been in contact with the company already quite a bit. Uh, it, I think he might actually be getting a set to try out, or they might be coming to visit him, I think, to do some testing. Um, so that'll be pretty cool to see. I know he's got some aero wheels in the pipeline and some aero road bikes. Um, so stay tuned. We might be able to get some interesting data coming soon, so we will find out. All right, moving on to very much non-aero data stuff. Uh, I'm not really sure what to think of this exactly because uh, NBA superstar LeBron James has now become an investor in Canyon Bicycles. Uh, There's no official statement as far as how much the investment was exactly, but it was reported to be somewhere in the neighborhood of around 30 million US, which is not nothing, it would be nice to have $30 million to decide to mm-hmm. sink somewhere. Um, the big question, however, is where do we think this money is going? And like, what is it going to be used for? A yacht. $30 million, I don't even think really buy as like a real, real yacht. I think I think I saw on some other financial websites that that $30 million investment values the company at about $750 million. Um, so that gives you an idea of the share of that LeBron owns within that company. Uh, and I think the this private equity that is the majority shareholder now, and I believe Roman, the founder, is is not a majority shareholder anymore. So um, I think, yeah, I mean, it, it's my understanding with that investment is it's designed to assist with their growth into the American market, the US market. And I think LeBron, what he brings to it is potentially not just the money, which I believe was someone else, probably someone else's money. He's probably more the face to it. Uh, he brings, yeah, uh, reach beyond beyond cycling can ever imagine. What I'm really curious about is, I mean, Le- LeBron James has a really strong history uh, in philanthropy particularly for like underprivileged at-risk youth, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, he has donated a ton of money to groups like um, uh, like Boys and Girls Club of America and like what else? The, uh, the, Children's, Defense Fl- the Children's Defense Fund, another organization called After School All-Stars. Um, he's got his own college scholarship program. And he does all sorts of stuff like he's that. His own, he's got his own primary school that each kid he does. got a bike at one point. Yeah. He does. He, he has... He has very admirably put in a lot of effort toward trying to, at least trying to equalize some of the inequities that some kids, unfortunately, are just born into. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I am really curious about is if Canyon perhaps might make some sort of similar efforts. And I wonder if that might be part of the stipulation with having his name and his, presumably some portion of his money attached to this. Um, trying to make some effort into make cycling a little bit more accessible or a little bit more more uh, appealing to sort of just the average American sports fan. Yeah, I mean it. It's a tough one to say because Canyon, while they're price competitive and if anything are helping bring prices of bikes down, at the same time they're still quite a high end brand. So it it feels. I, I don't I don't know if I could see them 
trying to push into a market that that truly makes bicycles accessible to those people to people that wouldn't otherwise think about cycling. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. Kaylee, Zach, what do you reckon? Well, I mean, he, he also just likes bikes. I mean, he was yeah. pretty notorious for he used to he used to ride to games. Uh, I think that there's a whole string of stories. This is a while ago now. This is like you know probably 2012, 2013 earlier LeBron days. Um, but that's where like it made national news here in the States for, for quite a while of like him just rocking up on a bike, just <laughs> showing up to, to NBA games on a bike. And, and, you know, that alone is a huge thing for this sport. Right. I mean, like let's, let's be honest. It, it, it's still a very niche sport. It's a very kind of strange sport in the eyes of, of a lot of people and anything to normalize it. Uh, and you know the world's biggest NBA star doing it is is absolutely going to sort of normalize it in people's eyes is a good thing. And and uh, you know the fact the fact that he was riding to games uh, on streets on bike paths, uh, you know, p- p- helps push for better infrastructure and all the rest. I am really interested to see what the sort of stipulations around this investment were because I don't, we don't, we don't have the answer. I mean, that, that's the question you asked James, but we don't, we don't really have the answer at this point in time. Um, but I can't imagine that this is an investment that would be solely for return. Uh, in fact, there's, there's no chance that that is the case, right? It doesn't really seem to be his thing. First of all, he doesn't necessarily need that much return. Uh, and, and second of all, like if you just wanted return, bicycles is not where you would go, right? Uh, I am totally in it for the money, Kaylee. Speak for yourself. Yeah, well, we're all in it for the money. Uh, there's certainly, you know, there's something else There's something else going on here and, and I think that we will find out. Um, I think that Canyon will probably be shouting from the rooftops about it at some point soon. We just don't know exactly what it is yet. We can, we can make some guesses based off, like you said, like the, his sort of the things that we know LeBron James cares about. Uh, but what exactly that looks like is yeah, still very much up in the air. It is super, super cool, though, uh, just to see his name attached to this. And and he's certainly not the first NBA player, NBA superstar to to really associate with cycling. And this, or, or I guess, sort of mainstream sports celebrity or whatever to attach themselves to cycling either. I mean, Reggie Miller has already been really involved in cycling. Um, I mean, just at the there was there was a bit of a kerfuffle about Valtteri Bottas. Being at the Tour de France Femmes, uh, that maybe we should or should not well, bring up. But it wasn't really about him being there. It was about media outlets, not us. Other Focusing. media outlets. That was like yeah. the only the, the only story they ran about about Tour de France Femme was that Botas was there. And I think that right. that, but, that nuance maybe got lost in the particular story that that uh, Amy Jones wrote. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, point point being, it is a good thing whenever someone who has really, really widespread appeal brings attention in a good way to cycling. And this Absolutely. is another example of that. And I think hopefully it's just the, the continuation of a really cool trend because we do know a lot of mainstream sports stars do ride bikes. All the cool ones. Yep, but most don't uh, don't put their name to a brand and and go out of their way to try and improve and grow cycling for for everyone. So massive kudos to LeBron. So all hail King James. 
we'll see what happens with this one. We'll keep our keep our eyes on this one. See see where this goes. Um, all right, moving on to our next, I guess, last piece of news for today. Um, the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, better known as NABS, uh, it's been the premier showcase for custom builders since 2005. Uh, I've been to every show as, uh, since the one in San Diego in 2006. Um, and that show has now unfortunately been canceled or I guess postponed officially, but it's been postponed for three years straight. Uh, the first two of those being ostensibly due to COVID, but now citing, quote, unexpectedly low number of commitments to attend from exhibitors, unquote. Um, NABS officially is still planning to hold a show in 2023 in Denver, however, with no website, no social media really, and only intermittent communications from organizer Don Walker's personal Facebook account. Hasn't really been a great look. Um Days after that news, that announcement that NABS is being postponed again, however, came the announcement of a new custom bike show called MADE, uh, M-A-D-E. Uh, it's going to be permanently based in Portland, Oregon. It's scheduled to debut sometime in September 2023. It'll be an outdoor show instead of being inside some convention center like NABS was. It's backed by long-term uh, cycling industry PR agency, Echoes Communications, and it actually has a whole bunch of commitments from uh, some pretty big-name exhibitors like Moots, Mosaic, Speedwagon, Argonaut, Shone Studios, uh, Retrotech, Stinner, Breadwinner Cycles, Falconer, and a bunch of others, and also ancillary component brands like Paul Component Engineering, Chris King, Abbey Bike Tools, and the Pros Closet Museum. From where I sit, it kind of looks like Made is going to be sort of maybe the next big handmade show to, to hit the scene, potentially picking up where Nabs leaves off, if assuming Nabs doesn't really actually recover. And it could be a really cool... Uh, a really cool compliment to the Philly Bike Expo that that's already been in play for quite a while and has uh, established quite a good foothold here. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really pretty excited to see more attention being paid on hand on handmade bikes. Mm-hmm. It's great. Sounds like a great show. Naps was always fun, and if this is better than that, then can't go wrong. Yeah, I mean, one of the uh, I, I talked to Billy Sinkford. Uh, he's one of the co-founders of of Echos, and he said one of the biggest. Uh, motivators for moving the, for moving the show to an outdoor venue, sort of like Sea Otter, um, is the potential for builders, if they choose to do so, to have bikes that people could actually ride, test ride, and ideally return. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, that that's something that is really intriguing because that certainly hasn't been something that you typically get at a handmade custom bike show. Which to me it makes zero sense. Like I understand that people like to do sure. bikes. But like a demo rental bike or whatever, like is never ever going to be as good. Whether it's a custom bike or a stock bike, it's never going to be as good as one that like is actually is actually set up for you or the geometry is custom for you. Like I feel like if you are a custom builder doing demo bikes at this show, that's doing a disservice to your bike because like people are getting a lesser experience than the actual end product would be. Yeah. Well, but it also could be. If you also could be sort of these medium-sized brands like uh, like Moots, for example, like potentially Lightspeed, uh, you know, potentially even Mosaic, like anyone who has who does custom but also does have stock geometry, and that could also help at least even even if it's not the exact fit, even if it's not the exact setup. I think for a lot of people, just the idea that you might be able to throw a bike over this, or throw a leg over a bike that you've barely even seen before. Even if, even if it doesn't fit ideally, like, like that might just get that person so excited about the idea that they might just go ahead and and you know put the money down for a, for an order. 
I think it makes sense for the brands that are large enough to have that those stock geometry options. Um, I need, I know from my point of view, I'm thinking of like the Australian builder scene where the show is basically filled out with customer bikes or upcoming customer bikes, like just freshly finished in time, and the customers agree to show it. In that, and that's case, how it was in Nabs too. Yeah, yeah. So I think in in that case, I think a lot of these makers will be quite reluctant over the whole like, hey, you can ride these things now, and then people wanting to do that. Um, but yeah, I think it, it'll, will benefit the brands like Lightspeed and Moots and the other brands that are big enough to have the production of, of stock bikes that they could have a small fleet of bikes. Um, and some of these brands already own those fleets. So. I mean, yeah. mostly we like these shows because we go and we take a lot of pretty pictures and we get to just drool over them. Right. Like, and, it, and you get access I to think the that's, makeup. That's, that's, yeah, you, you get to talk, you get to talk to the person that made the thing you know, we as media get to go create a bunch of content around really beautiful machines that, I mean, part of the beauty of them is that they are kind of out of reach to almost everybody. <laughs> uh, but that's, you know, it's, it's, it's bike porn, right? Like that, 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 that's, that was the, the crux of NABs was, was, was always bikes. You know, you go look at the Rob English stuff or whatever, where, you you wouldn't even actually really want to ride half the stuff that he brought there, but it was amazing and it was gorgeous and the and the the craftsmanship behind it was unbelievable. And I I still think that yeah okay it's it's outside yeah you can maybe ride a moots or whatever, but you know the 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 success of this will hinge on as before will hinge on like whether us and other media outlets can go essentially create a whole bunch of bike port content out of it and that should work just fine, I would imagine. In fact, shooting outside would be significantly better than shooting inside in some hall. It, so well, as long as there, it's there not are other reasons. <laughs> or <laughs> yeah, as long as it's not raining. Well, rain, yeah, rain, rain can look nice. And I mean, having worked uh, outdoor demo in Vegas, like mm. you also don't want the opposite where everything is just covered in a completely thick yeah. layer of dust. Like yeah. that's not good <laughs> photos. No. Um, yeah, I, I just think that that's the sort of core value proposition for something like this remains unchanged from what NABS was. Uh, and they can kind of pitch it differently if they want to, but um, it will be successful if we get, and by we, I mean like cycling gets a bajillion beautiful pictures of beautiful bikes. Cause let's be honest, that's what we all want. So, so James, you wrote, you wrote an article announcing this and uh, with some quotes in it. And there was quite a few comments that sort of pointed out that, this is a bit unfair to nabs like maids kind of stepping in and taking advantage of COVID. And I, I don't know if this is the right form to say it, but (laughs) there were rumors in the industry that brands literally do not want to be a part of nabs anymore. So not all brands, but there were certainly some brands that had pulled out from participating in nabs because the person that ran the event had, had made some comments in, in public that, that brands didn't want to be aligned with. So I think it's just worth worth mentioning that there's there's more to the story, and I think what Maid's doing sounds ridiculously cool. The other thing that that Maid is doing is they it at least from from what I have been told, from what I've heard, from what I understand, they're specifically making it extremely easy and accessible for builders to attend the show. So they've they've already they've already lined up a partnership with Bike Flights um, to either subsidize or make free depending on like the kind of like the size and scale of your operation, whatever, um, shipping of, of show bikes to the show. Um, it sounds like they are offering a booth and display, a booth slash display space for builders for 
basically nothing if maybe just some sort of nominal fee or something. But the it sounds like the point is to almost kind of have like a sliding scale. It's like if you are capable, if they know that you are capable of ponying up a fair bit of money to, to display at the show, then they are going to expect you or they maybe have some sort of fee where you need to pay a decent amount of money to have your, your stuff at the show. But if you're just sort of like some first year builder or something like that, you probably will just have a space for free and you might be able to get your one or two bikes there for free, which would be really cool. I mean, it sounds like a really good opportunity to potentially get your foot in the door and get your stuff noticed by people. Yep. That'll be, that'll be tricky. To, that'll be fun to navigate. Yeah. Very, very <laughs> tricky. <laughs> yeah. Char- uh, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, I've heard of you before. So you yeah. have to give me money. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't say this is, this has all been ironed out. Like the custom, the custom bike scene's not lucrative. Yeah. I'm not saying it's possible to figure out, but, uh, yeah, a slight sliding scale of fees based based off of like how many bikes you build every year or something. It'll be like, based on Instagram <laughs> followers. It has to be based on Instagram followers. <laughs> 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 the, it those are those are the sorts of details that I'm not going to concern myself with, Kelly. That that's not my job here. Um, if this was a media company, then then maybe it would just be like you know donate what you think is what you think this is worth. <laughs> we'll just go with that. How about that? The, N- the NPR model. <laughs> haven't we been trying that? <laughs> well, we did. And then we put a paywall in and it works better. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, oh, touchy subject. Let's just get, let's just move on from that one. Um, so here's what I want to know though. Cause I want to, I want to kind of expand on something that you mentioned a minute ago, Haley, about how, about how, uh, so many of these bikes at shows like this are just complete unobtainium, super, super expensive, um, you know, like miles long waiting list, that sort of thing. That's why you but, go though. Well, that, that is a big reason why you go. However, that does ignore a massive percentage of this custom hand-built market that is actually accessible, that is more reasonably priced, especially in comparison to the way uh, regular mainstream mass-produced bikes have been inflating in price, especially over the last couple of years. And we have, you know, looking at top-end bikes from any major brand, we're looking at like twelve, thirteen thousand $13,000 US easily. Like no question, like Trek, Specialized, Giant, Canada, whatever. Like everyone has bikes well, well into the five figures. And while I will be the first to admit that almost without fail, the bike that you would get from a custom builder, no matter how nice it is, is almost certainly not going to be technologically as good as some of these super hyper-engineered bikes. I would argue, however, that for a lot of people, having like this perfectly dialed fit and this perfectly dialed ride quality and this perfectly customized look and feel and aesthetic and paint and everything, I wonder if that would make more sense and offer more benefit to most people. Like, what does, does a custom bike make more sense to a lot of people? Nonsense. Everyone needs Arrow. <laughs> Arrow is everything. I mean, like, I have a number of bikes, and I have a custom bike, and I have a lot of production bikes, and the all the production ones are lighter and faster and more aero and stiffer and a lot of, like, whatever the descriptor, it is, those are more of that. But I hop on my custom bike that is arguably out of date, it has rim brakes, mechanical shifting, and not huge tire clearance, whatever, but I hop on it, and the geometry is made perfectly for me, and it just, like, feels like home. Like, it... It's immediately comfortable. It's just not like a oh, this is kind of weird thing. Like it just immediately feels good, and I feel comfortable on it. I can rip on a downhill. I can cl- like it just feels how I want the bike to feel. So I think that is like the number one selling point for a custom bike. 
and the fact that they're usually made to last rather than essentially be a disposable bike that in five years it, you get something different. Right. The fact that in many of these cases, the bikes are heavier and aren't necessarily on the cutting edge of weight and that sort of thing. Like it, you have more wiggle room because there's just more material there oftentimes, right? Not all the time, but oftentimes. So I think there's, there's two big factors working at play here for the big brands, for the big brands doing production bikes. So the first is that they have the marketing budgets to be seen by the broader population and to create desire for their products. So they're being seen at races like the Tour de France and people then want to have a bike that is ridden at the Tour de France. The other element is that a new customer, a new person to cycling in all their research is basically never going to come across these custom brands. They're going to go into the bike shops. They're going to do their research through bike shops. And those bike shops only sell the production bikes uh, because the custom bikes are pretty low margin for shops to get involved in. Um, and they really have to have a customer that knows what they want in order to to justify that purchase. So the whole industry is focused around selling production bikes, which makes the job of these custom bike brands quite difficult. Uh, and that's They're sad because swimming upstream. yeah, yeah, and that's sad because I think a lot of people would probably be just as happy, if not happier, owning a custom bike for a similar money to a top end production bike. Um, with the exception of those that really want to be a racer and want to have the racer look or follow, you know, the footsteps of their their heroes. I guess the thing I wonder is ultimately when people buy a bike, there are all sorts of motivations for for buying for buying whatever you end up with. And I guess just speaking primarily in the, in the drop bar world, I'm thinking. Um, like maybe you're after a certain feature or like a certain type of geometry or whatever, but ultimately what you are really typically looking for is that you're kind of looking for something that just sort of speaks to you. Right. I mean, like, like Zach said, like his, he's got a custom mosaic that just feels like home. Um, you know, I, I could, I could say that about my, my seven, for example. Um, and it, it, it just feels like it was made for you. It feels like it was custom tailored because it was. And um, I think that's the sort of, that's the sort of emotion that everyone is trying to get from whatever bike that they have. Mm-hmm. And I guess the challenge is it, it's hard to, it's obviously hard to convey that sort of thing. It's sort of like the custom bike is almost sort of just like a promise that it will be like that, but there's no guarantee. Mm. So I guess ultimately these sorts of shows, what you're hoping for is just to kind of connect with the builder or like, you know, some sort of like builder's philosophy or whatever that what, they think a bike should be is going to match up with what you think. And then that hopefully you'll be, you'll be able to get the bike that you want and need. Well, and let's be honest here. There's, there's, there's a fair amount of sort of confirmation bias post purchase bias that, that happens, right. Which is like, you just spent X amount of dollars on a, on a custom bike. If it's not what you want, it was a custom bike. That is your fault. Uh, yes. and, so, and so, and so most people will be like, yeah, that I got exactly what I wanted, even if they didn't, uh, which I think is part of the reason why custom bikes, you know, in the, in the sort of the grand scheme of things have such a good reputation is because, well, one, you do genuinely get to have that conversation with the builder. And so generally you do actually get what you want, but even if you miss a little bit, you don't tend to admit it yeah. to anybody, but maybe yourself. Yeah. And, and let's be honest, like we all just want, we just want bikes that get us stoked when we like go out to the garage or go out to the shed or, or, or get out of the basement or whatever, pull off our wall in the living room, wherever you store your bikes, you know, when you go pick it up, you just want to feel excited about this thing that you spent a bunch of money on that you spent a lot of time on. 
it has to function and do the things you want it to do and turn like you want it to and feel good. But realistically, we can probably convince ourselves that almost any bike does those things, uh, particularly with a bunch of nice parts on it. And so yeah, it's just, it's just, you're just buying the feeling really, I think with this, and just to be clear, like, there's nothing wrong with that. That is, but, I have purchased but that's what that you're going multiple for, times, right? Yeah. That's, that's exactly, that's the reason why you do it is because you just want to be excited about the thing that you are pulling off the wall every single time you pull it off the wall. And that's, that's for me, what you get out of, out of custom bikes. And it's what you can never get out of sort of big mass produced stuff. Even if the mass produced stuff is technically better and genuinely excellent uh it's the reason why i keep going back to to custom builders the the biggest barrier for custom builders that i see is that um it's a big expense there's a there's a time there's a waiting time often associated and that big expense and the fact that you're actually responsible for almost designing this bike I think that's the barrier is a lot of people don't actually have enough confidence in knowing exactly what they want, that they're willing to fork out that much money for it. They'd rather buy something off the shelf, assuming that the brand knows better than they do. And then with the ability to resell it, if they decide that it's not the bike for them. Um, and I think that realistically scares a lot of people away from going the custom, the customer out, which is why a lot of these custom brands have gotten into production frames. Fair enough, fair enough. But then, you know, I always like to draw these automotive analogies, but then I'm looking at all of these electric vehicles that are coming out of the woodwork. Like how many people, how many hundreds of thousands of people have put down a deposit for a Ford F-150 Lightning that have never seen one in the per uh, in person or this new Chevy Silverado EV or, you know, this you know, who dropped money on this Rivian pick electric pickup truck that was from a new company that hadn't delivered a single vehicle yet when they put a deposit down. James, have you been looking into electric trucks? Well, I mean, I always read about <laughs> I always read about cars in general. So, I <laughs> you just said electric vehicles, and everyone there was a truck. I'm like, well, but because I know the, what James but, wants. But, the, but those, I'm just, I'm, <laughs> I'm using those examples because those are the ones that have seemingly elicited the most excitement from the general public and have like the longest waiting list and the longest list of people who have put on deposits. I am certainly not in the market for a ninety thousand dollar truck. I, I, I am. It, Nissan Leaf gets my heart thumping. No. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> point point being, point being, Dave, the, I totally the, hear the, what you're the, saying. The, the leaf um, drives by, but I, yeah, but but I wonder if if it's almost just sort of, yeah, it, if it's sort of just the responsibility of the custom builder to sort of just instill that level of confidence that they will be able to produce what someone will will yes will think I, that they're getting. And I think most custom builders do a great job of that. But I guess to argue with your analogy is that in that case they're that customer buying these these new electric vehicles are, are buying a vehicle sight unseen that they haven't driven, which is exactly the case for any production bike at this moment in time because <laughs> basically every production bike brand got rid of their demo fleet and has okay, made you wait six enough. months. Yeah, okay. I think, yeah, I think right, you know, what the custom bike company, the analogy there would be like, okay, well, you're going to order your, your Ford, but you need to design the engine for us and tell us exactly the output that you want in it and you know the the capacity and all that and then we'll build the ford for you and i, I think, think at that like, point people would be scared off some custom builders like i mean i think it depends on your level of nerdiness and stuff like like i could go to a custom builder and be like this is the exact geometry that i want and i know that i want this and they'd be like great sign this thing that says like this was your decision and we'll build it and then yeah. there are also custom builders that are like Actually, we know that you're not that much of a nerd. Yes. So like 
here's our bike fitter that we work with mm-hmm. and they're going to help you figure out geometry. And then like, basically all you're going to have to do is tell them like, a, I guess you have to already decide what type style of bike, like, is it a gravel bike or a road bike or whatever. But then like at the end of the day, all you have to really decide is paint the color. Like, yeah, you're not having to sit down and be like, Oh, do I want this head tube angle or this? Like, like that's not, yeah. On most consumers, like no. it can be if you want it to be, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, like and most the gr- of the time, it's you're going to get a bike fit and then deciding what color it is. Yeah, and the best like builders that you meet in person, like the you know the the legendary builders that actually meet with you and fit you and everything, give you that service, and that's something that you is built into the price um, versus you know say a, a custom bike out of Asia. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's a really cool service, and a lot of those builders will gauge your your nerdiness, right? They'll they'll get an understanding of you know when you're asking for a certain fit, they might be able to gauge and be like, okay, that fit actually makes sense for you. I can do that, or they might turn around and say, actually, I this is my living. I I design bikes for you know for life. This is my whole this is my whole career, and I don't think that's the right call for you. And I would rather make a better bike for you by doing X. It does go wrong though. I remember hearing a story. I was talking to a builder. And a story about this guy wanted a custom road bike and he was like a crit racer and he's like, make it as stiff as you can possibly make it. Like, I don't care. Just make it as stiff as you can. And the builder was like, that's not a great idea, but if you really want to, I'll do it for you. Sign here. Yeah, basically. And so this guy got this bike and it like all, it was just incredibly stiff. And the dude's like, you're right. This was a bad idea. It's too (laughs) stiff. It's terrible. Like, let's now build this how you would have said to build it for me. And said like, Yeah. Like it can go wrong, but usually that's not the builder's right. fault. I mean, we've all seen custom bikes that end up with like a mountain of headset spacers or something like that. Uh, but anyway, I think feel like we're kind of we starting to talk in circles here. We all uh, like custom what, bikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what I'm curious to know is for anyone listening to this, if you had ever considered getting a custom bike for yourself or if you would be open to considering a custom bike, if let's just say the price wasn't quite as much as you thought it would be, or if you'd be willing to deal with an extra half kilo or kilo of weight or whatever, or like, you know, however many extra grams of drag, like what would you be willing to compromise to get a custom bike, custom fit, custom geometry? To circle back to the beginning of this conversation, does going to a bike show make you more likely to buy a custom bike? Yes. So let us know in the comments. Uh, There will be an associated post on SockingTips.com. So let us know in the comments what you think or head over to the forum on SockingTips.com and And, chime in. And what electric truck are you considering? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that too. All right, let's let's finish up the new segment here. Let's move on. Now that Kaylee's back, we need to do a segment of Ask a Mechanic. I've been studying uh, since my last appearance, and I am now ready to go. Okay. I know well, all the things as, now. I read all the instruction <laughs> manuals while, while I was gone. Excellent. Did you Excellent. get a nice wow. French hammer? <laughs> people keep, people tag me every single time there is a hammer, literally anywhere on Instagram, I get tagged in it. So I, I appreciate Perfect. that. Please continue Perfect. to do so. Yes. Yes. It's working. How many, well, how many times have you been sent the Thor toolbox hammer? <laughs> many, 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 for people many, that many, many times. That don't know what this is. It's, it's Thor's hammer that is made of plastic. That opens up into a really shitty toolbox. <laughs> <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> this sounds right up my alley, actually. Very uh, much so. Because what people Very. don't people what people don't understand is 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 what I actually use to hammer things is like a 
two ninety nine hammer from Harbor Freight. That is that is my go to hammer, and that's all I need. That's all I need to be honest. It's in your toolbox that sits out in the rain, and everything's rusty. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> well, anyway, anyway, I'm ready at, for this segment. <laughs> as as always, all of our questions for Ask a Mechanic are coming from our Velo Club members. So if you have been on the fence about joining Velo Club, maybe that'll kind of nudge you over because then we'll answer your questions on the Ask a Mechanic segment of the Nerler Podcast. All right, first question comes from James Ratcliffe. Well, he's saying, this is probably a really stupid question. There are no stupid questions, James, but this is probably a really stupid question, but presumably I can just unplug a DI2 rear derailleur and then plug it back in again without needing to do any adjustments, right? So the little boot around the cable perished and fell off, and I want to replace it to stop dust and water getting in. I've never really had to play with DI2, so I'm a, so I'm a little bit lost. Anyone? Anyone? First of all, first of all there are stupid questions, uh, but that isn't one, I don't think, because frankly... Electrical stuff is scary and has gremlins, and you never know. I, I, I mean, I know the answer to this question, but I can see how you wouldn't know the answer, answer to this question. So don't, don't undersell yourself and your question with starting it with, this might be a stupid question. It's a good question. Bailey, you should answer it. <laughs> the answer is going to be, you're going to be fine. Don't even worry about it. Just go ahead and unplug it. Plug it, plug it back in. Just one thing is for DI2 cables, when you do plug them back in, make sure you push them in until you kind of get like that little pop. Um, just that that means it's actually clicked into place because you, I certainly have run into, into situations where people have plugged a cable back in, but they haven't pushed it in all the way. And then it kind of just like falls out. And also don't, Did, uh, don't pull it out by the wire, like use the connection part of it. Yeah, do they do they still they still tell you to use the little like tool? The little tool? Like, yes, yep. they do. Fork oh, yes. tool? Oh yes. Yeah. Yep. They certainly do. Nah, you don't need that tool. Just just yank on it, you'll be fine. The little dust cover thing though is not I would say that doesn't really do anything. Like it doesn't come on the only one the only derailers it comes with is the mountain bike DIT yeah, stuff that I think isn't this made is, anymore. I think this and derailer in question is an XT. I think it was an and XT the new DIT twelve speed yep. stuff. But like all the other stuff doesn't use that and it they're all still waterproof, like the little dust seal. They all, it's just this rubber material and it dries out and cracks and then falls off. And yeah, it doesn't you do anything. You save yourself like one and a half grams. Just take it off and leave it off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. The tr- any the- true weight weenie would immediately get rid of that stupid little boot. Yeah. Mm. Mm. All right. <laughs> next question. I've gotten rid of stupider things. <laughs> next <laughs> question. More important things. God damn it. Kaylee, shut up already. <laughs> <laughs> you asked me back on this podcast, James. I was happily I did, living my I life. I did, and I'm regretting my decisions already. I was happily living my life off talking about nothing but bike racing. Ah, and then yes. You were like, okay. you were like, Kaylee, where's we my, need where's you my mute button? to come back and answer. Next question comes from Hannon Ayer. Hannon says, twice I've stripped the threads around the banjo bolt where the hose comes into the lever from a SRAM rival hydraulic brake lever. Both times he said he was using a torque wrench Etc. Still, it got messed up. Question: Can I bring them back to life with a helicoil or larger diameter banjo bolt or super glue or something? Like a rival mechanical, but hydraulic, like mechanical shifter but hydraulic brake. Uh, he didn't specify if it was a uh, mechanical shifter or electronic shifter. Because that uses but- like the banjo is underneath like the reservoir cap. Yeah. And it's basically just like a glorified wood screw into plastic. Yes, exactly. I think in either one of those situations, it's threaded into just like. Plastic. Plastic. Yeah. But, and there's like, it's very low torque. So if you strip that out, you're, you've done something wrong. Um, one thing that is possible here, you said that you're using a torque wrench. Uh, depending on what torque wrench you're using, 
Um, Probably it, doesn't go low enough. Yeah, I was going to say, it may not go low enough really or may not really have the sort of sensitivity or resolution or accuracy at that range that you really need. Uh, that bolt really does not need to be very tight because ultimately all you're, all you're trying to do is just there, – there's no – there's no motion on that banjo uh, when when everything is all set up. Um, all you're really trying to do is just squish that O-ring so that everything's all sealed. Um, I don't know what the torque spec is, but it's quite low. So if you are, yeah, if you are stripping that bolt out, then it's it's pretty clear that you're you're over tightening it quite a bit. But anyway, uh, the question, however, is is not how that happened. It's more, you know, can you fix it? And as far as I know, there is no good way to fix it. I mean, if the lever's already stripped, like, and you want to try a helicoil, I'd say go for it. Like. Worst case, it doesn't work, and you're where you started. Yeah, I've definitely never tried to do that fix, so I've got no, no recommendations there. But I will say, like, just on the torque wrench thing, your torque wrench is most accurate in the middle of its torque scale. So if you're, you know, if your torque wrench is three to fifteen newton meters, then roughly eight would be the. My math's wrong there, but yeah, it's uh in that range. Your your torque wrench is going to be at its best accuracy. So for that sort of screw in this um in this lever, as James said, it's you probably dealing with quite a lot of uh, inaccuracy by using a torque wrench and it might be one of those situations that you go by feel you just join me in kaylee fretz's anti-torque wrench society and <laughs> i mean this is one of those instances it. where not using a torque wrench is better right right there's because, a lot of them most of them i would say oh, uh, <laughs> all right next question anyway sir sorry Hannon, best of luck with that. Please follow up with us on the Slack channel and let us know how this went. Uh, wish we had a better answer for you, unfortunately. But uh, I mean, I personally, I think that lever is probably done again. Um, anyway, next question comes from Lewis Toomey. Uh, any suggestions for the best option for cutting wound brake cable housing? He said he's used both side cutters and Bowden cutter. Bowden cutter. I don't know what a Bowden cutter is. Uh, in the past, it's like the it's a, a bicycle bicycle wound cable. Basically, it's the technical term for a wound cable okay um use both of those types of cutters in the past but both partly crushed the winding and the cut end has tended to be bent across over the center of the housing a few minutes with a file removes the bent section of winding and creates an acceptable square end face but his method of cutting is obviously creating more work and the more filing he has to do the more the cut edges of the plastic uh, of, the, of the plastic coating get abraded and he's saying this makes the coating more likely to be problematic when inserting into a close fitting end cap Basically, what are we recommending here for the best practices for cutting conventional wound brake housing for a mechanical cable actuated brake? James, I feel like you have a good answer here. Uh, well, I, I will say that for me personally, I have always had the most issues with uh, like scissor type cutters. I found that the like like a um, like side cutters or something like a Felco or something like that that's that's often a popular one for for cable, but. Um, I've had the most issues with those in the past, crimping uh, that little piece of, of steel wound uh, outer housing. What I use personally are some Knipex like six inch bolt cutters that seem to do quite well. But one thing that I have always made sure to do is if you look at the housing, you can almost always see where the seams are in uh, in that flat wound uh, steel, whatever thing that that that's used to make the housing, and I usually try to line it up so that one of the one of the jaws of whatever cutters you're using line up in that gap, and that seems to make it less likely that you're going to just mash the end of that housing. Uh, and then once you cut the thing down, you should mainly only have to file it a little bit, and then I'll usually just use a a pick or a sharpened spoke or something to kind of just make sure the the inner uh, Teflon lining is is opened up, and that's usually about all I do. Yep, 
that's I'm very similar. I like either a pair of sharp side cutters or or those exact um, bolt cutters is what I use um, versus a like a dedicated bicycle cable cutter um, for the same reasons. And I guess I don't do the visual check, but I, I almost go by feel to sit to feel how the cutter's going through, like whether it's finding the gap and sort of splitting the the coil or if it's crimping onto the coil. Uh, and you can really feel that through the through the plier or through the cutter. Um, so yeah, that's just a, a bit of a nuance to it, but, uh, basically, yeah, you're looking to, to go between the, the coil wires as opposed to directly munching them together. Yeah. I would add, like, it's one of those things that I wouldn't overthink. Like you cut the housing, clean whatever, a little bit of metal, maybe get smushed sometimes, and then just clean out the plastic liner. Like, don't stress about it I mean, or like it, overthink it. It literally like, should be a 10 second job. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do know some mechanics that'll put the end of the cable onto the bench grinder to get it perfectly square. I personally haven't found that that makes any appreciable difference, and so, yeah, often I mean, I think, ends up causing more issues, like melting the, think, the internal uh-huh. liner. Like, if you care that much about having a perfectly flat, like prevent any sort of housing squish or whatever, then use linear brake housing mm-hmm. instead of the coil stuff, and that yeah. solves this problem. All right. Next question. Well, anyway, I, I'll... Um, Kaylee looks like he has something to add. No, no, I'm cutting him off. Next question. <laughs> I have, I have, I'm cutting I have him off. Nothing, I'm cutting yeah. him off. Next question comes I, from Damian Smith. This kitchen one... Kitchen scissors? No, just cut... Ah. <laughs> Next question comes from Damian Smith. Damian's in a little bit of a pickle here. Uh, he's developed play in a bottle cage rib nut on a carbon frame. He said he has tried using hot glue and sugru to fill in the gaps. But he said it wears out and has to be refilled, and then the whole thing just spins again. Any ideas for a more permanent or a better solution? Yes, I <laughs> definitely have recommendations here. Uh, uh, so those those rib nuts that are installed in carbon frames, typically the way they work, uh, it's not really entirely all that different from like a drywall anchor uh, that you would put in your wall or something like that. So you you stick the thing in the hole that's in in your frame, and then. There's, there's usually a specific tool that kind of like squishes the back end and uh, and kind of like sandwiches the wall of the tube in that rib nut. And sometimes they come loose. Um, but instead of trying to glue it in place, usually what I, what's best to do is to find someone with that rib nut tool and just kind of squish it again. Um, or uh, what you can also do there, you can look this up on YouTube. There's a variety of different ways to do this. But uh, typically I've had really good luck with just having the right... Uh, or a good like M5 cap head bolt and like a couple of nuts and washers and that sort of thing. And if you do the technique right, again, it's it's a little bit hard to, to describe in audio, but I would just go look up a video for this. Um, but I I've done that multiple times with very good success on one on a on a Pinarello that arrived from another publication that shall go unnamed that was cross threaded. Um, was but, it bicycling? Uh, I, I'm I'm not I'm not going to stop stop baiting me. No, I'm not I'm not going to not going to do it. But anyway, I just, I just literally I pulled the first one that I could think <laughs> of. I have no idea. But anyway, yes. Instead of gluing it, I would I would do whatever you can to try and mechanically fix that in place again. I mean, pretty much any like reputable bike shop should be able to take care of this. Ideally, yep. And um, but James, you don't have the tool. No, I don't bother. I have the tool. How do you not have the tool? Because mm. I I need to do that sort of Dave thing. Dave like probably has four of them, years. but you he only need does. one. I probably does. <laughs> See, here, here's the thing. Here's the reason why I don't have the tool. Because one, I, I don't feel like I need to buy the tool for something that I've used like like a half right. dozen times in my life. And two, oftentimes those 
rivet nuts that need to be fixed are in a place on the frame where there's not enough room to fit the tool in the triangle. Whereas with the right nut and bolt, there's always room. Yeah. Mm. So yes, and I, and yeah. it works. So yeah, I don't bother. Approach is good. Um, this is actually a topic we've covered before, but um, those rivet nuts, if if all else fails, you can actually drill them out quite easily. Drill out the center, and it sort of just falls into the frame. Um, and in the case that if you had uh, an issue where the carbon is no longer in great condition, Trek actually makes an oversized rivet nut that uh, is designed to repair frames um, that where the diameter is actually larger than a uh, an industry standard rivet nut. And um, a lot of people didn't believe me that it's impossible that Trek had a had a product that couldn't just be bought at uh, McMaster's um, or, or similar. But I've I've looked into it. It's definitely larger than the industry standard. It does seem to be something that Trek had custom made. Yes, you can have it custom made, but I think the minimum quantity order quantity is about five thousand. So I haven't gone that <laughs> route. I did look into it, but. Um, a bit too right. So, so what you're saying, blood. Dave, is right now you have four thousand nine hundred ninety nine custom made oversized rivets yes. that are in your bench somewhere. Yes. Uh, I mean, we should okay. do a Kickstarter on this. You know, why should Trek have all the fun? Um, but yeah. So anyway, if if uh, any mechanics listening out there that come across a, a rivet nut that's failed and then a, a regular rivet nut's not quite grabbing, get check out Trek. Okay. Our last question for this episode. This is an easy one. This one comes from Ron England. Ron's got a YBN 12-speed chain that he broke to a length that he thought would be fine while messing around with gearing options, but then he changed his mind about the chain ring size, and now it's too short. Are there any chain pins for adding the links back in, or do I just add in more quick links? Dave? Is Ron England Rob English's alter ego? (laughs) As far as I know, no, but that would be amazing if it was, actually. Because, I mean, Rob would just be quite embarrassed. He'd be quite embarrassed to have to ask us a question, right? Uh, so he might want to just come up with a fake name. <laughs> that is, I love that. I love that thought. Ron England instead of Rob English. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> anyway, Dave, what's the answer to this question? Uh, it's it's realistically, it's fine to use multiple quick links in a chain. Um, mechanics might frown upon it and and point the finger at you, but it's uh, it's not going to realistically cause you any issues as long as those quick links are in new condition what's the maximum number of quick links you've ever had in the chain Uh, i believe there have been multiple youtube video creators like content creator people who have created entire chains yes out of quick links yes so that seems excessive which is ridiculous because you have to take apart yes it does does. but you know you're doing it for the likes right i mean it's yes yeah you're doing it for the clicks Um, i think i've had like four in one chain at one point maybe yeah i think i've had three the first one is just one. The second one was because I cut the chain too short and then realized that and then I had to add like one link in. <laughs> so I did that and then I broke it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I've had three. I, I, will, I, I will say... Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, in my bike shop days, I used to do a fair bit of single speeding, but I didn't have like a frame that allowed for chain tension. So I'd use the... I'd magic link it where you basically find a chain that's the exact right amount of wear, uh, right amount of worn <laughs> with the right gear ratio, and then you'd get your right chain tension. So I'd be like I mean, putting if you're not, slightly If you're a bike worn. mechanic and you've not done this, yes. then you're not a bike mechanic. <laughs> yeah. So I would, I, I, would, mean, I, I would sometimes cheat it and join multiple different, like, different chains to get. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would say, we used to, um, whenever I used to install a new chain at the bike shop back in the day, 
the chains were always a little bit longer than they really needed to be almost always. Mm-hmm. So you ended up with what, like five, six links left over yep. whatever. Yep. And I used to just have in my drawer on the bench, just a little area that had a whole bunch of just leftover SRAM, like PC nice. 69 or 89 or whatever chains that they were back in the day. And I would just splice them all together to make a chain because I was working as a bike shop mechanic and I did not have money for a new chain. And it worked. I did not die. It was not ideal. Um, I, I just one more thing to add on this, uh, Ron. One, one, one more thing. So, I don't know if actually Pedro still makes this, um, but they used to make a chain tool that had a peening function, where it would also mushroom the head of the chain pin. Um, and not do this to anything other than it can't be chained with the special pin, though. Yeah, I mean, you it's can't not, tell someone to do that. Okay, fine. Mal, just cut that part. <laughs> we'll just cut that part out. I think you should do it. I think you should be bold. Nope. I'm, Go I'm, forth. I'm curious. Were you, forth were you painting Shimano chains? Uh, I mean, I we're gonna have to put an explicit rating on this one. Probably. I, I mean, I I know I've done that to my own every now and then. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, I okay. have. Mm. Mm-hmm. This is why you had four master links in your chain because you shift and the chain explodes. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, no, I mean, like, I mean, I will say, I, I I did end up with two master links in my in my chain after my mountain bike ride. I, feel, on, I mean, this is okay Sunday to do on a nine speed chain. But a 12-speed yeah. chain, you can't, you no. can't do okay, this. Okay, yeah, Mal, just cut that part out. We're just not going to go. I mean, that's some good banter, though. No, we can leave, leave it in. Leave it in. Oh, fine. Leave okay. it in. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll bring to a close this week's episode of Nerd Alert. But as is now becoming tradition, we first want to give a shout out to this week's unofficial sponsor, Filio. Co-founded by Velo Club member Fikret Adelaide, Filio, quote, Simplify saving and documenting site photos and videos for construction, inspection, and more, unquote. Are you a builder and want a visually documented client's house progress? Are you in disaster management or insurance and need to organize images for a site? Use Filio. The system, you, the system features a user-friendly mobile app that automatically geotags your images and uploads them to a cloud-based folder. You can annotate as you see fit, and the corresponding web dashboard makes it easy to put together timelines and map-based presentations. Check it out at Filio.io. Thanks to the folks at Filio for providing Nerd Alert with absolutely no money whatsoever for this ad. Sold. <laughs> my, my, favorite, my favorite thing about these ads is it reminds us that people have real jobs. They do. That they, they have do. to go do. Yeah, that they like this. That sounds like a genuinely brilliant solution to a problem that none of us will ever encounter <laughs> in our entire lives. <laughs> But I love it. They are fun to do. And again, like you know, we don't we don't take bike money on Nerd Alert. We have no industry ads or anything like that. That is by by that that's our choice. That's certainly by intent because certainly companies have asked and inquired. So anyway, we have unofficial sponsors that have some sort of Velo Club association to them. So that's our ad for today. Anyway, finally, if you haven't done so already, please leave us please leave us a rating or review on iTunes and tell all your buddies about Nerd Alert so we can nerd out with more people. And with that, thanks again for listening. We will see you next week. Bye. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Filio. Filio. <laughs> <laughs>